AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for July 8th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. I'm joined today online by uh, Jim Clausing, and uh, hi, Jim. It sounds like you've got some more wet weather coming, huh? Yeah, it's uh, it's been a little strange. 18 of the last 19 Tuesdays, we've had rain and storms here. Got more coming today. And for those that don't know, Jim's joining us from out in the middle of Ohio, and uh, the rest of us are here in New Jersey, and uh, also joined by uh, John Hogeboom. And John, hope you had a good 4th of July. We had a good 4th. It was uneventful, so not much to report, which is good. Yeah, uneventful <laughs> from a family from, point of view and from a, and from a security point of view, view as, well. as well. Right. And I'm glad to hear it. And also joined by Matt Kaiser here in the studio, studio or work environment, whatever you want to call this. <laughs> How about you, Matt? Oh, doing pretty good myself. Had good. a good Fourth of July weekend. Caught up on some projects, but uh, probably collected a few more for yeah. the future. All right, nice warm weekend. It was uh, it was terrific. Although it was, I guess it was wet here, but uh, I happened to have gone up into central New York, and it was we escaped the hurricane effects. So. Right. In any case, let's get to uh, the cybersecurity topics here. And uh, first one, Matt, you're up first, and uh, but I'm top of the list is uh, Android. I guess permissions issue. Is that, is that correct? It kind of is and it kind of isn't, Brian. Uh, so a German security group called CureSec uh, was doing a code audit of Android. It seems that they found a particular port portion of the code that actually allows you to bypass some of the restrictions you would expect. So mm -hmm. if you're familiar with the Android security model, applications have to request permissions in order to use certain functions, you mm -hmm. know, making phone calls, making in-app purchases, you know, taking photos, things like that. Seems they found a particular class within the Android phone capabilities that actually um, overshares a little bit is a way to say it. Mm. Um, there's a couple of different actions which it allows you to take uh, without actually registering uh, because what's happening is they're actually exporting it. So they're, in, in the code for Android, you can sort of share functions to other applications mm -hmm. uh, and that's what's happening here. And it, it's kind of interesting in fact that when they did the code audit, they looked at the source code and whoever the developer was had said explicitly, you know, this is supposed to be visible, it's not supposed to be exported. Right. But unfortunately, whoever set it up exported those. So these functions are available. The upshot of this is that uh, you can make, within Android, uh, an application can reach out and make, for example, phone calls to any number at all. And this includes mm -hmm. certain special function numbers that are used by you know, carrier communications, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but probably the most likely use of it is going to be calling like 900 numbers and other charge numbers mm -hmm. to make, make a lot of money. Yeah, so this is, a, this is more of, a, it's not malware that's been discovered. It's really just a, 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 a vulnerability associated with the devices or at least perceived as a vulnerability, of granting access to features that you wouldn't really expect it to, uh, to allow. Right, it bypasses the, ex the expectations of the Android right. security model. And I think perhaps the discovery here is one of the merits of an open source platform is that this organization had the opportunity to do a code review and were able to identify this perhaps before it was abused. Now, that's always the sort of the catch-22 here. You've, mm -hmm. You're kind of racing with the malicious actors to hopefully find, uh, you know, find the vulnerabilities 
uh, initiate some kind of a correction before the, uh, the malicious actors do that. And in the case of Android, you have the, the issue that not all carriers will patch at the same time. Right. So this may be in the wild for a while. It should be pointed out that uh, this is patched in the latest version of the Android OS, but there are an awful lot of uh, devices out there that are not running 4.4.4. .4 .4. Right. Uh, and this vulnerability existed up through 4.4.2. So, so yeah, there are, there are likely to be, unfortunately, a lot of vulnerable devices for a while. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, obviously we want to encourage patching devices as quickly as possible for exactly that reason, right? Exactly. As soon as the patch becomes available for your device, you want to make sure that you get this one applied. Mm -hmm. On the whole open source angle, I think if Stan was here, he would agree that it's a lot easier to find uh, vulnerabilities in code when you have the source as opposed to reverse engineering mm -hmm. you know, from a binary executable type of thing. Um, so while it is good that open source, you got more eyes on it, it's also not so great because you've got more eyes on it that are going to have potential to find a vulnerability or exploit it, whereas there's going to be less eyes on something that's compiled. Yeah. And well, I think the hope is that and the open source philosophy is you have more good eyes than bad eyes. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that is controversial. There is some question about the level of motivation to find vulnerabilities as a user, you know, the, the good folks, it, perhaps it's the ones with malicious intent that are more motivated to go and look for those vulnerabilities. And so that still is a challenge. Now, I think the bug bounty programs are a good incentive for organizations to get involved in this. They're actually folks that are, have made a career out of uh, researching vulnerabilities, exposing those, and, uh, and getting rewarded for that. And I think that kind of theme is a, is a good direction to go here. All right, so let's uh, talk about the next topic here. And uh, John, I guess we had some observations about uh, the Akamai State of the Internet report. This is actually the first quarter report, even though that we're uh, moving into the third quarter here. And uh, perhaps you can share a few thoughts about that with yeah, us. Yeah, so Akamai released their State of the Internet report. Um, it's uh, an interesting report. I recommend people uh, go take a look at it because it covers a lot of things, not just uh, DDoS attacks, but it also talks about the global IPv4 exhaustion uh, mm -hmm. by, you know, the different uh, areas of the world and, you know, Aaron versus Afrinic versus uh, APNIC, et cetera, who has, you know, amount of address blocks left and how quickly they're exhausting. Uh, connection speeds at various parts of the world, who has the fastest connectivity mm -hmm. that they provide to their you know, users within, you know, uh, their part of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is a global kind of perspective. So it's kind of interesting, some of the findings, mm -hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. In the terms of DDoS attacks and malicious security-related things that are in that report, uh, some of the interesting observations, uh, they observe DDoS attacks are down. Uh, we've kind of seen various things with that. Like I would say in the first quarter, we had a lot of NTP reflection attacks, but yeah. certainly the DNS reflection attacks tailed off while the NTP stuff went up. Now things are kind of normalizing back again, it seems. They did uh, note that uh, China was hosting the most attack sources, uh, which is no surprise. Uh, the U.S. was in second place. And uh, there shouldn't be more attacks on consumer-related targets, mm -hmm. uh, which might be related to gaming and whatnot, as opposed to businesses and yeah. uh, other types of targets like that. And I think that's perhaps an important point. That is, when you look at Akamai's point of view for doing this sort of analysis, they are an organization that has a lot of infrastructure diversified, you know, distributed around the internet, but it's predominantly focused on hosting sites for businesses. Whereas as the denial of service attacks, as we've observed, 
have evolved, have been migrating more frequently toward targeting consumers, those are perhaps not very visible to Akamai in their analysis. So their analysis will be more, I think, associated with a business perspective, that is if you're hosting an e-commerce website, that sort of thing. And uh, perhaps it was actually down in that, uh, under those, in that particular category. Right, right. One of the things I thought was interesting is they, uh, they present a, a picture uh, very similar to what we show, you know, week after week, which is kind of their perspective of uh, the scanning activity that they're picking up on the internet. And you can see it's very carbon copy of what we kind of talk about, although theirs is aggregated across an entire quarter. Mm -hmm. We're kind of showing you how it's changing week after week. Um, I thought it was interesting to see that there is some, you know, other corroboration to, you know, similar findings to what we show every, every week yep. in terms of the activity. Uh, they do note some of the other things, like, you know, we had talked about port 5000 uh, TCP being targeted a lot earlier, you know, several months ago, and that was uh, associated with that Synology to station manager, et cetera, et cetera. They, mm -hmm. they noted that finding as well. Um, so uh, just interesting finding. It's a, it's a good report to take a look at, nice synopsis of uh, the way things are, not just in terms of attacks, but in terms of internet connectivity and other types of things of that nature mm -hmm. uh, in general, which I thought was interesting. Right. Again, I think just a compare and contrast here. They're, again, I, I suspect that basically we're, they're looking at probes that are hitting their infrastructure that's distributed around the internet, which absolutely would be providing a good perspective. There be, might be something, it, it would essentially be from uh, uh, essentially dark space analysis from their point of view. That is, they're not expecting these connections to be coming into those particular IP addresses. Whereas one of the things that is a little subtly different in the way that we do the analysis is that we're looking at flow data in general across the network. And uh, so it may be that some destinations are expecting those connections. So one example that where it's slightly different is we do pick up P2P activity that uh, they wouldn't necessarily pick up because there is no P2P destination in those cases. So there are some subtle differences that would show up in the data. And uh, I just thought it'd be useful to you know sort of compare and contra contrast right, right, those two. That's a good point. All right, so let's uh, go to the next topic here, and I guess um, macroviruses, uh, they're back? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if anybody remembers uh, from probably like the 1999-2000 time frame that macroviruses were really, you know, uh, utilized quite a bit in Word and Excel. You'd open a Word document, it would automatically launch. Since that time, uh, you know, Microsoft has done a pretty good job at prohibiting and putting more security checks around any of that type of activity occurring. So that when you open a Word document or Excel document up and it's got any kind of macros uh, in it, it will have a, you know, some kind of warning that says this, you know, uh, file has macros in it and they've been disabled, but you can enable them. So hearkening uh, uh, back to Matt's story of last week, uh, Virus Bulletin, who has recently, you know, kind of gone open source with all of their uh, stuff that they used to charge people for. One of the first reports they put out here was one on this topic, and uh, they saw an interesting trend. So uh, these macroviruses, which use the Visual Basic for Applications, VBA, scripting language, they, uh, they had kind of tailed away, but within the past few months here, they've kind of seen them resurge again. The way they're doing this is not automatically like they used to, because they were able to leverage it because Word and Excel didn't have any protections put in. But you can see there's a security warning that says macros have been disabled. That's normally what you would see. So what they're doing nowadays, a few actors out there, is they're trying to social engineer people 
in the document itself, they'll blur out a part of the image. It might not even really get unblurred when you turn the macros on. It's just a blurred image. And it says, in order to see the rest of the content of this you know, um, receipt or whatever it is, you need to enable the macro functionality. And they put a little arrow pointing you know, upwards towards the button that you need to click to enable it. So they're just trying to social engineer people into enabling the macros mm -hmm. that what they're really going to do is drop something on your machine, a piece of malware or something. So they really right. use that as a dropper mechanism to uh, put some additional malware that's really going to be uh, the real infection, mm -hmm. so to speak. But an interesting tactic that I thought would be useful to make people aware of that this is kind of a tactic that's been emerging probably within the past two or three months here. And uh, he has a really good uh, report that we have referenced here uh, that goes into a lot more detail of these findings. So um, mm -hmm. another interesting thing, another good reason to go check out what he has available uh, on his website in terms of the uh, Virus Bulletin uh, website there. Yeah. You know, it, it, I guess my, my observation here, it's only sort of peripherally related, but one of the things I found is news sites, for example, you know, in order to sort of encourage or, or, or make the advertising that, uh, that, it, that basically provides that monetizes these new sites, uh, they're making it more compelling that you, you know, do something with the advertisements. So they used to do the annoying pop-ups. Now what they're doing is they're, they give you sort of the beginning or the abstract of the article, and then you kind of have to click through in order to actually get to the depth of the article. Which, you know, it, and so it's, it's a little bit along the same lines here that people get used to in order to get access to the entire content, you have to click through to something. And this is just a subtle difference. And in fact, I know a lot of people that aren't, you know, in the software or the security space might not even make a distinction between what they're doing in a browser or in a Word document or actually in the Word program. They just see it's a window, you do stuff in it, and so pointing an arrow up and clicking allow macros, very conceivable that folks would be uh, basically sucked into that, yeah. that, that approach. Especially yeah. if you're not a savvy user, you know, a lot of people probably don't even know that, you know, macro viruses are something to be worried about and they're, oh, click it on, you know, so uh, something to be wary of and, you know, educate your users about uh, if you are in that, you know, security space or desktop, it's a good thing to let your users know about. For years, with um, you know, you've got to either install an update to your current thing, or you've got to add this new video player application. Same kind of, you know, take one action that normally you usually wouldn't do. But there's there's a there's a pretty good reason to do it, maybe kind of. Mm -hmm. All right. So Matt, I guess uh, in the APT space, we're seeing some new tactics, some activities taking place. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new. Um, so it looks like Kaspersky, uh, last year, they reported on uh, a malware family called Miniduke. Mm -hmm. It seems that they've seen an uptick in Miniduke activity, and there's a new modification to the malware. Now, the malware was known for a few things originally. Uh, that it was written in assembly, which takes forever. It means whoever's running it's very, well, you know, competent. Mm -hmm. um, that it used a number of different C2 options, including Twitter, and that it was sending updates um, packaged inside of a, a GIF file. So it looked like an image file, but you unpack it and it's actually the malware. Uh, the newest version has some modifications to that, still using Twitter, have a whole bunch of different options as well for different kinds of command and control. The updates are a little sneakier now. It seems like they're taking the actual file and cutting it into a whole bunch of smaller versions, compressing those individual pieces, encrypting those pieces, and then repackaging them mm -hmm. um, in some other way. And it seems to be intended to make it harder to get the entire sample at once. 
So whereas if a, a malware researcher knew that they could go to a particular URL and get the entire binary, here they have to be able to get each individual sliver and you know, unpack that, un decrypt that, and then you know, reconstitute the entire yeah, thing. And reassemble it all together again, right? Right, so right. it's, again, to make it more difficult for someone who's trying to analyze it. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of interesting, there's, um, it looks to be packed with a custom packer, and there's a few strings in there. I wasn't quite sure from reading the article if it was called BotGen Studio, but that was one of the new mystery strings that came out of this. Nitro was another one. And then there was uh, Nemesis Gemina, which is just, you know, fun to say, but confusing. Um, yeah. But these all seem to, to hint to either internal names of the malware itself, or they could just be, you know, red herrings. Who knows? Right. Lots of speculation to be sure about. Well, those. you see that level of sophistication in other aspects of it. You kind of wonder if these kinds of little, little hints are really good hints, right? Right. They could be completely redirecting you somewhere else. Now, the, the target set is probably a better indicator of what this is all about. Um, it seems that the majority of the targets are in Russia, the United States, um, Georgia, and the UK, with a few other countries um, scattered in there as well. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was kind of interesting about it that I thought was that um, it seems Kaspersky got a hold of one of the command and control servers. They don't really go into that, but I'm sure they have their methods. Mm -hmm. um, and they actually found that the attackers had uploaded a whole other set of tools as well. So they got an insight into the attacker toolkit, and they had some standard stuff like SQL Map, Hydra, but they also had some tools for breaking into Joomla and WordPress blogs, mm. which I personally thought was interesting because I seem to think that the APT guys are after very high value targets. They've got a very specific way of doing things, but the Joomla and WordPress are sort of like low hanging fruit. Mm. Well, perhaps. So uh, I guess that I'm conjecturing here, but one is that you'd mentioned using Twitter as command and control, so that may be an alternative path for command and control that would look uh, legitimate otherwise. Okay. Right. And so, uh, we have and, seen that in the past. And we have seen that sort of thing in the past. Right. With APT actors. So. Right. That's true. <laughs> and another example might be um, uh, being able to use it as a watering hole. So you might be able to get content uh, distributed through uh, a WordPress site that uh, would be actually, you know, malware, but, you know, wouldn't appear to be malware from the site, from the proxy's point of view, for example. So, uh, you know, that's speculation on my part, but certainly uh, possibilities that they might be doing. Both good points. Yeah. Now, it's kind of curious. You mentioned it was uh, done in assemblers. Any significance to that from a, a victim's point of view or somebody that's trying to analyze it? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> so, first off, the new version, it appears that some or all of the code is now written in C. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit different. If you're writing an assembly, the, the sort of the, the signatures that you see for certain languages, like you know, every language, every compiler, if you bring it down to assembly, there'll be certain optimizations or certain tricks that a compiler will use mm -hmm. or the language will just throw in there that you'll be able to say, okay, I recognize this structure, this is C. I'll recognize this structure, this is mm -hmm. something else. Mm -hmm. uh, writing an assembly, none of that will appear. I mean, right. maybe some of the same logic applies, but you won't see these characteristics and you won't be able to characterize the source of the malware, I think, as easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it could make the reverse engineering more complex because you don't see those regular structures. A loop structure could be very obscure looking in, a, in an assembler, whereas uh, it's going to be relatively straightforward if you can recognize the compiler that's being used. But on the other hand, there are certain tools that can be used to make the actual assembly output of a, of a program mm -hmm. impossible to read. So right. if a human being wrote this, it's more likely, in my opinion, to be just the functionality that you need and a lot mm -hmm. not not as much of the crazy you know running through a thousand loops to to do something right. over here to distract you 
So you have the opportunity to be much more efficient, more compact. Uh, the slammer worm was actually a pretty good example. That was done in assembler and it, by necessity, in fact, and that it was uh, really just a 500 byte program. And it was conveyed in a single packet, able to exploit the vulnerability in the Microsoft SQL Server and uh, install itself and begin the propagation process beyond that point. I don't think it did anything beyond that, but it certainly did it very efficiently, was able to propagate very quickly and really had wrecked havoc on the internet in general. And this was back in, was it 2001, I think, so way back in the early worm days. But <laughs> one of the, uh, I, I think one of the efficiency examples of, uh, of the, that type of coding. I have one other question. Can you explain a little bit about how they're using Twitter for command and control? So um, it looks like they've got a number of different Twitter handles set up. I actually tried looking at some of the samples that were out there. Mm -hmm. It looks like they're using some sort of encryption mechanism and then wrapping the text uh, with a base64 encoding so it can be represented as, as you know ASCII text. Mm -hmm. And then I think they stick some characters at the start of it to indicate that this is you know command and control message just in case the code wasn't sure or tried to for some reason read a non-valid mm -hmm. message. Um, they seem to have changed that little token at the front since the last version. Okay. Um, but I, I haven't seen the process for going from you know base64 blob to command and control yet. So conceivably, you'd be able to sort of scan the, the social media to find that those the characteristics of perhaps even just non-readable, you know, not human language type things. I'm not sure how much of that really exists in Twitter in a native sense, but um, clearly it's one of these more sophisticated methods of propagating. I mean, in, in that sense, you can kind of think of Twitter as a monster IRC server, right? right? If you know what to it's look for, yeah. Limited in terms of the number of characters that you can put into a message, but certainly uh, fits in that context. And they, they could potentially use multimedia for posting command and control as well, which Yeah, I think Base64 Twitter. would stand out like a sore thumb in Twitter postings, you would think that the Twitter folks would, would probably think so. notice something like this yeah. a little amiss here. But images would be a great way to obfuscate it so that you know you post an image and it's got something embedded mm -hmm. in there with some steganography or something that you know has the command and control information that yeah. wants to deliver. The other thing about the images, and you were saying that you could search for it, it's possible that they're thinking to, instead of actually embedding the names, you know, a malware author, instead of embedding names, could say, here's the string you look for on Twitter, mm -hmm. use the search function, and oh. then find its command and control that way without giving yeah. away where yeah, the absolutely. control points are, and then right. change them they every hour. Changing, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, so little tricks like that. So, uh, I mean, we could, we could conjecture for <laughs> hours on these kinds yeah. of topics. Uh, certainly, um, um, things that folks that are looking for this type of thing should be looking out for, and also uh, using their own imagination on how some of these things could be done. All right, so uh, Jim, let's go ahead over to you, and uh, I guess uh, you're going to have to help me with this one, Jim. <laughs> what are you here to talk about? <laughs> this was a, a finding by some researchers at Context Information Security last week, and um, they they published a report where they had uh, looked at a certain brand of um, Wi-Fi enabled LED light bulbs. Wow. 
that could be controlled via your, you know, your iPhone or your Android. And I, I believe they were colored. I think you could change the color of the light. You could turn them on and off. Mm -hmm. One one light bulb had to be on the Wi-Fi network, and then the rest of them actually were on a, a, a low-powered wireless mesh radio network. But basically, these guys at Context got their hands on one of these light bulbs, tore it apart, reverse-engineered some stuff, and figured out that if you were within range of the of this uh, mesh network, which is about 30 meters, they were accidentally broadcasting the Wi-Fi password over that mesh network mm. to the other light bulbs. It's kind of an interesting result, but it's not anything that I'm going to go panic about. But it's one of these things... You know, we having more and more devices connected to the internet. You know, you're, you're Brian. You always talk about the internet of insecure things. You know, this is this is another case where, um, you know, folks put these devices out there and didn't necessarily think through all of the security ramifications. Mm -hmm. Now, the LIFX guys, the the manufacturers of these light bulbs. Um, actually responded very quickly as soon as context alerted them to it they have created firmware updates for the light bulbs there's a windows or a, a mac or i think even a linux app that you can run that if it's on the same network then it'll push the updates out to the these light bulbs but mm -hmm. uh, it was kind of an interesting finding it was, as I said, not something that is going to be net attackable from the internet. You know, this particular one, you had to actually be on the on that other, the low powered, the six low WPAN network to see that traffic. And the, with this firmware update, they are now encrypting that traffic mm -hmm. uh, between the light bulbs. So, well, I guess first of all, if you're I guess the lesson learned here is if your living room starts looking like a disco and you didn't plan on that or intend for that to happen, you might want to check and see if there are any vulnerabilities that need to be patched in your light bulbs. Is that, that I get that basically right, Jim? Yeah, well, that's, that's certainly one lesson from, from all of this. Uh, it's, uh, there was, there were a couple of write-ups on this that that I read, and the, a good one was the the HelpNet security one, where they quoted the research director at Context as as pointing out, you know, it's clear that in the dash to get onto the IoT bandwagon, the Internet of Things bandwagon, security mm -hmm. is not being prioritized as highly as it should be right. in many connected devices, and this is something that we've talked about on this program any number of times, mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, they, they want the connectivity, the users want the functionality and security isn't always in the, in the forefront of everybody's mind when they're developing these things. Mm -hmm. And this is just, uh, you know, another example of, of, of where that, that can potentially bite you. As I said, yeah, mm -hmm. hacking into these things isn't trivial, but, Potentially, it's within the capabilities of determined uh, bad guys. Right, right. And, you know, I think one aspect of this is it really kind of drives home the scale 
of the this Internet of Things that where we're going to now you know how many people would have conceived of the notion of a light bulb you know being a part of the network and uh, even though I guess it's you have a master and you have a, a bunch of slaves kind of off of that on a mesh network I you know and, and this is conjecture on my part but I would expect that there are some assumptions about the bandwidth capabilities of a mesh network with using that technology and how much transmission or re is going on whereas if you can teach tell all the devices to kind of talk you know it's, you could effectively conduct a denial of service attacks on, on a local basis on that bandwidth now you know we'd have to investigate that a little bit further but these kinds of concepts are a lot of little I think little uh, things that kind of spur off from from this this whole concept from a security standpoint that we perhaps haven't even really thought about very closely yet the whole point behind this 802.15.4 um, mesh network is to extend IPv6 over this low-powered personal area network. So each of those uh, each of those light bulbs or whatever other devices are on that mesh network uh, ultimately are expected to be internet addressable. Right now, in in this case, it was only the communication over that mesh network that was unencrypted, but yeah, you know what? What what's the next device going to be that is potentially reachable from the internet, even across these other net, you know, low-powered networks? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, perhaps another angle of looking at this, in fact, is that, you know, if you're like me, I every time I go out to buy light bulbs, I buy a different kind. Now, you could argue that you know, so long as there are proprietary aspects of these uh, of this kind of technology. It might drive folks to buy the same kind of light bulb for their entire house and kind of continue to do that, or at least for a period of time. But uh, I would expect that most likely what's going to happen is maybe they're going to have some standards for communications and things like that. And so you might have two dozen different type brands of light bulbs with two dozen different pieces of software on those. And so long as the patching processes for each of those are, and it sounded like it was a somewhat cumbersome patching process that you were describing, um, that whole, you know, that that whole thing really needs to be brought to, uh, to the point where it's much, much easier when you have not just a handful of devices in your house, but perhaps a hundred of them, right? My thought is, I'll probably remember to upgrade my home router, maybe remember to upgrade my smart TV. I am not going to remember that I got light bulbs stuck in the ceiling that I need to upgrade the firmware on. Until they go to <laughs> disco mode. Yeah, I know, but it's, you know, it's... <laughs> And part of me is wondering, do I really need that? Do I really yeah. need my light bulb to be connected to everything else? I don't know. But uh, Yeah, we used to say that about changing <laughs> the channels on the television. Well, right, right. Yeah, just get up and, <laughs> and turn the dial, yeah. right? But Oh, boy, I just dated myself. But sorry. <laughs> I'm with you, John. I, I don't necessarily want all of that, but yeah. it's coming. And, you know, like I said, these the idea behind this was you have your smartphone and be able to adjust the, the lights from your smartphone while you're sitting in your Lazy Boy. I, you know, I could see this going, I, I don't want to get too far off topic here, but I could see this going off and it, it, when we start talking about smart grid and having the capability to, um, you know, lights are automatic. We, we tend to, we're trained to turn lights on and turn them off when we go in and out of rooms, but it doesn't have to be that way. There can be other technologies around that say, you know, that, that sense when you come into the room, know when the lights need to be turned on for other reasons, for security reasons or whatever. And so um, 
all of that will become a lot more automatic than we are, we, the notion of a light switch on the wall may actually disappear in here. So it's those kinds of concepts that, uh, you know, it really does change the way we, we think about things. And then, oh, go ahead, I was going to say, um, I kept thinking, I watched their, the promotional video for this brand of light bulb, and they had not just, you know, this is my, my reading lamp over here, they had whole buildings set up with this where you could, you know, everything turns blue when you hit a button on your smartphone. Right. And I started thinking about, like, um, deployments of regular IT where, you know, if you would have a regular network over here for, you know, desktop machines, you would have your servers on a separate network, you'd have interfaces for those management on a separate network. Maybe you have to start thinking about different Wi-Fi deployments for your smart bulbs as opposed mm -hmm. to your regular users and things like that to segment it. And that would sort of mitigate some of the problems here because if oh, you can absolutely. get into the smart bulb, but you can cause your disco party, like you said, you can't get much further than that. Yeah. So now the home router gets a lot more sophisticated, or oh, yeah. we hope, <laughs> those, those sorts of capabilities. There is a notion of a DMZ in, in home routers, many home routers. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit soft in, in terms of my definition of what a DMZ is supposed to do, but uh, there certainly are some opportunities to improve on it, and hopefully we'll be moving in that kind of direction as well. I guess you can kind of do it manually by, by buying multiple devices and kind of daisy-chaining them together and, and things like that today, if you like, as well. All right, I see, there you go. All right, so let's take a look at our viewer mailbag here. And um, we got a question from Tim about sniffing out spam. And John, maybe you can walk us through this. Yeah, so uh, one of our viewers uh, wrote in with an interesting question. So I thought it would be worthwhile to kind of uh, talk about it, you know, briefly. Uh, he says, uh, when viewing potential spam, the new Yahoo Mail does not appear to allow us to hover over the email and see where it is coming from. Any suggestions? So um, uh, Yahoo Mail, actually, they did do an upgrade to their interface. I want to say somewhere at the beginning of this year or something like that. I can't remember the exact time frame when. Uh, and they went from their old interface, which I actually liked quite a bit, to this newer interface. Uh, it's a little, little sleeker, but a little less, uh, little less graphically intensive, too, I think. In any event, um, so there's a couple of things about this question. I wasn't quite sure which angle to take, so I took both angles here. So one of the first things is, is I just brought up one of the emails I had in my inbox uh, with an Amazon coupons. I wasn't quite sure if this is a legitimate email or not from Amazon. So uh, the first option here is you could just right click on the user's name in the listing there and then do a view full header. And when you click on that, it'll bring up a larger picture with the full headers of the email. This is a little bit probably more intensive than what you're actually looking for. Somewhere in there, down in the list, there will be a, uh, a line that indicates uh, who it's from, the, their name and whatnot there with the full email address. Probably more what Tim's question really was is just when you hover over it, can I see who that is, his email address, as opposed to the short name of just Amazon coupons. What you can do, uh, before my next option, which kind of addresses this, is if you do open the email, and this is kind of good practice, I also should mention it, Tim, good point for at least being wary of your email, so mm -hmm. it's a good question to begin with. But there's a couple of things I wanted to point out here on an email that you look at. And uh, the first thing is, is once you do open the email up in Yahoo, it will, uh, you can mouse over the, the username there, Amazon coupons, and it will show it. So that's the, the bullet one that I have there. The other thing, uh, number two that I show is, don't click on the show images button. So if there are images attached in this spam and you're, you're not sure about it yet, don't load the images. Frequently we've seen there's a lot of these emails that will arrive that have kind of a custom image with a URL that has an identifier in it such that if you actually load that image, it goes to the web server, you know, somewhere remotely 
and fetches it, sending that user ID. So now they know that this is a live email address, that you mm -hmm. actually exist. They'll continue to send you spam. And then the third option, or the third thing to, to make note of here is when you're in the email, if you hover over a link, at the bottom left, usually, uh, IE might be a little different, it will show you the URL, and I have an example of that there on number three. So you can kind of see, does this look right? And in this case, it does not look right. It does not look like Amazon uh, when you mouse over that. I'll also note that Yahoo actually has a nice um, security feature in their spam folder. So if you do the same thing and open an email in the spam folder, none of the links will be active. So that's a good thing that they do automatically. They just assume you're not going to want to click on any of the links that are in this email. Right, right. Um, but if it's in your regular folder, hovering over the uh, the link or the URL in the email will show you what it is. Says Yahoo has that feature. In Yahoo the mail, has in, mail. Yeah, okay. in, the, in their mail, okay. their web mail client here. So uh, go to the next slide. And this actually kind of shows you how to get more to the root of the matter. So when you're on the main interface, uh, when you hover over it, uh, the person's uh, email name, it won't show you their actual email address. What you can do is, and I think this was a default option in the new version of the Yahoo webmail interface, is to enable conversations. And what that does is it kind of stacks all the emails together mm -hmm. in a particular conversation, uh, so you can view it as one big long thread. If you disable that, so if you go to the settings uh, option from the gear, you click on the gear, you go to settings, uh, you disable the enable conversations, then back in the main user interface, if you hover over Amazon coupons, it will show you there that it's Amazon coupons at, I can't even read that, last awhdeck.com, which obviously doesn't sound quite legit. And I took a look. It, the reality of this is it's not malware, but it is probably just yeah, spam like, that you yeah, really don't want to like sort of get involved with. There's another option, too, that you can do. Instead of disabling the conversations mode, in the settings, you could also go back to the basic interface, which is a lot more like the older one was, but even more slimmed down. Mm -hmm. uh, and that will turn back on that uh, hover over option on the, uh, the, the email name to get you the email address, just like uh, we showed on the previous screen. All right, good deal. Uh, and there's one other thing I wanted to show real quick. And this is kind of an added bonus, because uh, one of the things I do like about Yahoo's service in general is that if you go to the, your settings, you click on the gear, you go to account info, it will bring up um, a page that lists uh, some settings that you can check on your account. One of them that's really useful if you think your account's been compromised, and we've come across cases of this during mm -hmm. investigations, uh, where your email account, your password to your Yahoo or whatever has gotten stolen or harvested via some malware, and now some actor in wherever, some remote part of the world, is logging into your email account and sending you know, email as though it's coming from you, probably mm -hmm. to people that are on your address book or whatnot. So what you can do is you can actually uh, go to the, um, uh, boy, I can't read that. Check your- uh, <laughs> View recent sign-in activity. View, view recent sign-in activity. And when you click on that option, it'll give you a list of the recent sign-in activity and where it came from generally. Right. It doesn't give you the IP address, but it gives you the part of the world. So, you know, all of mine shows New Jersey, U.S. or New York, U.S., which happens to be mm -hmm. uh, where we're located. Um, so I'm not worried here. But if your account was compromised, sometimes we'll see things like Bosnia or something or some, <laughs> some, some Eastern European country yeah. or something uh, logging into your Yahoo mail account. So uh, that's just another extra kind of uh, thing to check for or that you might want to go take take a look yeah. at. I think the Dilbert name for it is Albonia. Albonia, yeah. Albonia, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a couple other options in there too yeah. that you can look at when you, when you have time, but there's some things about timing out your your cookie. 
mm -hmm. more regularly because actually Yahoo by default gives you like a four-week cookie. So it'll stay active right. if you leave your browser up. Or if someone harvests your cookie, it stays uh, usable. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that there's some cases where cookie harvesting has occurred too and then somebody kind of you know, jumps into your session right, using right. Your, uh, uh, your cookie that you have with Yahoo. Yeah, so this is a case where somebody, they were able to get access to your machine through malware or something, steal, or maybe even grab it off, if somehow be able to, to get it through a Wi-Fi connection or something like that. They're able to steal your cookie and then basically use that for accessing the website. Right, and we've seen cross-site scripting as a real big yeah, cookie harvester yeah. type thing. Um, in any event, just uh, some, some other little added things to go check uh, okay. with your uh, Yahoo Mail. Hopefully that answers the question. All right, yeah, <laughs> I hope so. And uh, if you have any follow-up questions, Tim, or anybody for that matter, if you have any follow-up questions, let us know. Uh, you can reach us at threattrackatlist.att.com. And uh, let's go ahead and take a look at the internet weather over the last week or so here. And uh, we'll start out here with uh, some activity. You mentioned this earlier when you were talking about the Akamai uh, State of the Internet report. Uh, scan probes, uh, actually scan sources and probes on port 5000 TCP. Again, this is associated with the Synology Disk Station Manager here. And uh, this was actually a new scan activity that was initiated on July 4th. Actually, it looked like it was initiated at uh, basically 0 hundred hours on July 4th Eastern time, although uh, at, in UTC it kind of showed a little bit later than that. But the uh, other aspect of this I wanted to just show, put it into perspective, that looked like a big jump in activity, but when we look back over the last 180 days of activity, you can see the sort of the life cycle of this. And we've talked about this sawtooth pattern where it's clearly a botnet that's being told, lots of IP addresses being told to go out and do the scanning activity. And then uh, over time, different bots are able to complete their tasks earlier than others. And so you see this decay in the participation in that scanning activity. And then finally, the botnet operator initiates a new command. What this looks like to me is, so, well, we had a, basically a six-week hiatus in activity uh, that is initiating new commands. Now, part of it was that there was some public disclosure about this activity, and so the actor may have decided to lay low for a little bit. Uh, part of it may be that uh, they, they're just really doing maintenance activity on the botnet. That is, they've been able to establish a reasonable number of bots, and over time, you start to lose them, you know, somebody... They may have had a thunderstorm and it reset the device, and so they, uh, they lose access to it, and so they need to restore that access. So uh, it looks like they're basically in maintenance mode on this. Uh, again, may have uh, laid low for a little bit uh, until the, the uh, news of this sort of got out of the mainstream media. Uh, but it's definitely back. And uh, I just thought I'd share a little bit about what it looks like geographically where these are, and uh, clearly it is all over the world. Um, we, there seems to be kind of a heavy concentration in China, perhaps even the heaviest in Europe, but all over the place. United States, South America, Europe, even uh, little smatterings in Africa just a little bit there. China and India are uh, showing some hot spots associated with this. Next item here is scan sources on port 443 TCP. That's uh, HTTPS or encrypted web access. We talked about this last time. It hasn't changed at all, really. There's not really any significant change. Uh, we're showing 30 days of activity here where we have huge increase in the number of source addresses that are scanning on port 443. This is not new activity. We had reported on this. Uh, in fact, last week's uh, we showed a longer time period, which showed uh, the previous activity taking place as well. 
for the most part, this activity is originating out of Argentina. Again, I thought it would be useful to take a look at it from a geographic point of view. I, I want to point out uh, significance here is that this chart does not reflect the amount of probing activity from any one of these points. Uh, what it's reflecting is the concentration of sources at one of those points. And the reason that's significant is really the majority of probes on this port are coming out of the United States. Uh, in fact, they're coming out of a uh, sort of a known research source uh, that we feel is probing for heart bleed and uh, still continuing to uh, do probing to look for that activity, whereas the most sources are concentrated out of Argentina and not associated with heart bleed. We think there's a different purpose associated with that. Uh, next item here is scan probes on port 53 TCP, that's DNS, and uh, we've been reporting on this one for some time as well. Most of the probes are coming from a single address in China. Uh, it seems to consistently still be the case. This is automated activity. It has a very regular daily routine that it's going through. They may be attempting to do zone transfers. I, I, I suspect that this is basically just trying to map the uh, domain space of the internet to the best of their capability. Looking at the most probe ports, this is actually uh, probably very similar in terms of how we gather this data. We talked a little bit about the differences, but similar to what the Akamai report is, uh, is reporting on. But there are some differences clearly from what the first quarter 2014 report from Akamai says and what this specific day says here. In particular, at the top of the list, we see port 22 TCP. We're gonna take a little bit of a closer look at that. Port 135 TCP following that. And then uh, port 80 TCP has moved up several notches or four notches relative to uh, the top 10 from, uh, from last week. Uh, next is port 445 TCP that uh, has not changed in terms of its ranking. And we see port 5000, we already looked at the activity associated with that, that moved up 44 slots relative to other ports and the scanning activity that's taking place, followed by port 23 TCP, port 1433 TCP, 88 TCP, 3389 TCP, and then uh, last but not least, 53 UDP. And the next chart here, we're take, as I said, we'd take a look at the, uh, and what we're looking at here is actually the last 365 days, the last year of activity associated with port 22 TCP. The significance here is there is clearly an upward trend that's been taking place over the last year. So whereas uh, at the beginning of last year, we saw on the order of about uh, perhaps, you know, on a, in a bad period of time, 25 million scam probes in the hour. Now it's regular to see on the order of uh, 275, as high as 300 million probes in a given hour. So uh, we've seen about a tenfold increase in probes on port 22 TCP in the last year. And uh, as we've said several times before, this is most likely indicative of uh, uh, targeting the Internet of Things that have exposed uh, access to these ports and default passwords and uh, brute force password guessing activities going on against those. Next item here, scan probes on port 135 TCP. As a, that was second ranked in our top 10 ports. And uh, we've been reporting on this one for some time as well, showing 60 days of data. It is uh, at a lower level than we had seen previously, so uh, that's good news. But this, is, uh, this appears to be pretty much instigated by a uh, single actor here for some really strange but uh, most likely nefarious purposes.
Next item here is the most sources doing probing. And uh, at the top of the list, port 443 TCP, we've already talked about that one, followed by port 445 TCP. And we, we show, and actually I, I tend to jump over this, I wanted to at least mention it. We show uh, type, th actually uh, ICMP type three, and uh, that actually is an indicator of destination unreachable. And uh, we generally don't talk about that from a security standpoint. Oftentimes it does have some security ramifications associated with it, but there are a number of factors that can influence it. It could be uh, backscatter from a denial of service attack. It could be scanning activity against IP addresses that aren't answering or are answering that the destination is unreachable. So there are a lot of different causes. It's a little difficult to sort out which is which. So we uh, generally sort of skip over those. The next port here, port 80 TCP, 23 TCP, 8080 TCP, and then followed by uh, some ports that are most likely innocuous. That is uh, 27015, which is most likely associated with gaming activity, and uh, 3128. I think, John, you've mentioned this is associated with a proxy application. Yeah, is that right? Proxy. Yeah. So uh, that may have some uh, nefarious intent behind it, and then followed by 8081 TCP. You know, we haven't seen the um, zero, no wait. Uh, zero access. Zero access, P2P right? ports. So I always get them yeah. mixed up in my head. Yeah. Um, but yeah, zero access peer-to-peer -peer stuff, we haven't seen in a while. Yeah, it, it, well, it has been uh, diminishing over time. Yeah. And uh, so th that's, a, that's a positive thing. And I think part of the influence here is that there are some others that are so overwhelming that it's pushing them out of the top 10. So mm -hmm. uh, I, whereas the diminishing is occurring, it's not as if there's been a big change in the last couple of weeks. So we should perhaps revisit yeah, that and in, in next, uh, next week we can, uh, and show what's going on there. Uh, there has been some uh, suggestions that zero access may in fact still be active uh, in doing it. It's mostly associated with click fraud. And uh, there is some infrastructure that's still there. It doesn't appear that there's been any recruiting taking place, but I have uh, gotten some information that suggests perhaps that it's active. So uh, that's one of the things that we'll want to pay attention, a little, perhaps a little closer attention to, to see where uh, they could potentially be conducting their activities. So that's our show for today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. And uh, we certainly welcome your questions, uh, welcome your comments, and um, I look forward to hearing with you from you. Uh, to get notice of new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, we also welcome your comments on Twitter as well. Our handle is at ThreatTrack. Uh, ThreatTrack video is available in a couple of places. It's at the ATT Tech channel at att.com slash ThreatTrack. It's also available on YouTube as well. Just look for the ATT Tech channel there. Uh, you can also get an audio-only version on iTunes. And we'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Matt, and thank you, Jim, online. And uh, we'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.